You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The restrictions for gathering indoor events here in Honolulu are being taken to heart by the American Institute of Architects Honolulu chapter. It has put off a couple of its planned in-person social events indefinitely until it's safer for people to gather. This morning we talked to Honolulu AIA Vice President Jim Niccolo about the plans for a virtual inaugural conference entitled DNA, Design and Architecture. It brings together designers from New Zealand to New York to share innovative ideas with those in the construction, engineering, and architecture fields. So we've got nine virtual sessions and in the era of COVID, it's, it's all virtual. Um, but we've got nine different sessions kind of ranging in scale from design of cities to design of light fixtures. So it's pretty, pretty interesting range of, of different scales of design. And then in terms of topics, it, it ranges from equity and architectural practice climate resiliency, embodied carbon, lots of lots of different interesting kind of hot topics in the architectural design world right now. And, you know, given that we're working through this pandemic, how does the man-made world, the built world, come into play? We spend 90% of our, our, our lives in buildings, so they have a significant impact just not on the way we move through life, but also on our health and on our productivity. So some of the some of the presenters will be kind of specifically addressing those items. One of our keynote speakers is Z Smith from SQ Dumas Ripple. They're uh, an architecture firm uh, based in New Orleans. And Z is talking specifically about design lessons for hot and humid climates. And many of the sort of passive design strategies that make sense from an energy efficiency standpoint also have direct human health implications, you know, increased ventilation, access to outdoors, um, those, those things have, have grown in importance under the current pandemic. So it's been interesting to see how architecture in general, there's been a lot, a heightened interest in health and wellness, as you might expect, 18 months into a pandemic. Yeah, particularly with this, it's airborne. You know, the virus is airborne. And there's, you know, lots of discussion about physical distancing and whether office buildings and the workplace will be different, you know, moving forward. Yeah, and one of our panels in particular is titled Health Equity in the Built Environment. And it's all about kind of intentional design for individual resiliency and community resiliency. So kind of at at those different scales, but that'll definitely be a thread through uh, many of the presentations. And I think, too, you know, there, there's been lots of emphasis about resiliency, you know, during this pandemic. We've got to be sustainable as a community, as, as an island state. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think especially as an urban island state, I mean, it, it's estimated that 70 percent of our, our climate emissions come from our cities. So I think figuring out how, how we can design and operate them to, to not only adapt to a changing climate, but in in an ideal world, world, reduce the negative impact they have on accelerating that changing climate. Well, we do hear a lot about our footprint. And as we look at different building materials, concrete, uh, you know, we hear lots of discussion about, you know, impervious surfaces, you know, talking about design when it comes to stormwater drain, you know, management, uh, those kinds of elements. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis uh, uh, on the government side just about you know, what we should be doing to adapt to, let's say, climate change. Yeah, and I think there's a there's growing attention to not only the the impact of energy use in buildings and how that, you know, that energy use contributes to, to carbon emissions, but we're also now really starting to look at the building the products we use in buildings. And you you had referenced concrete. I've I've seen stats that suggest that if concrete were a were a country, it'd be the eighth largest emitter on the on the planet. So a huge amount of emissions associated with concrete, which is a pretty ubiquitous building material. So um, one of the the topics at DNA this year will will look specifically at embodied carbon and concrete and ways to reduce um, the, the emissions associated with what's really the largest contributor of building materials. Well, you know, I think I recall doing a tour, an AIA tour of downtown, and I think we had talked about the first use of concrete here on the islands, and I think it was the, the court building. I think the king at the time was really innovative. He was looking around the globe to see what was being done out there and what he could, what ideas he could bring back to Hawaii. Yeah, yep, it's an extremely durable material, which is why, it, and, and, and cheap <laughs> compared to other things, which is why it's so ubiquitous. But 
because it's so ubiquitous, it, it, uh, we have to really look at what the impacts are and alternatives to make it less, uh, less negatively impactful. And, you know, we hear about how we're in a housing crisis, and there are lots of ideas that have been tossed around about how do we increase the inventory of our housing stock. You know, so when we're talking about multifamily unit, what's out there? Yeah, and there's a, there's a great session that specifically deals with um, affordable multifamily housing and how to do low energy affordable multifamily housing. The, the title of the session is Designing Zero Energy Multifamily Buildings Informed by Simulation and Policy. So it's, it's one of our one of our nerdier uh, topics that'll that'll delve into um, simulation and energy modeling and how to optimize design, but also includes uh, Nathan Bishop, who's an LA-based architect with Koning Eisenberg, and we'll celebrate some of the, the work they've been doing specifically on kind of deep green, affordable multifamily housing. I had the opportunity to sit at a session before the uh, HCDA, the Hawaii Community Development Authority in Kaka'ako, and I think the architecture firm was involved in, uh, I think, the first building of micro units. And yeah. it yep. was interesting just to see the thought that went into the design, you know, about, you know, the afternoon sun and keeping the pigeons away, <laughs> keeping the mm-hmm. birds from roosting. A lot of thought goes into the in the built environment. A lot of thought goes into it and the decisions we make kind of last and have repercussions. So, you know, simple things about orientation of glazing and shading and things like that, that essentially once they're, those decisions are made, they don't change over the life of the building typically. So making informed decisions up front can kind of pay dividends for the, the life cycle of the building. And we do hear a lot about innovation. You know, we've got to do better and how do we deal with, you know, things like climate change. And so, you know, what's your hope with this conference as far as ideas for innovative design? So it's it's a mix. I mean, I think what's really, you know, it's a credit to the people who put it together. And I personally wasn't involved in putting it together, so I can I can I can brag on them <laughs> without tooting my own horn. They've they've really put together a, a, a mix of sort of international and national leaders and also local practitioners doing amazing things here on the island. So I think the the goal of the conference is really to sort of share ideas from other locations of innovation that's happening and also share innovation that's happening locally. We've got a a keynote speaker that uh, Mike Cornett, who is the uh, former mayor of Oklahoma City, really transformed that city. So we've got, you know, people speaking not just about design of infrastructure, but design of policy and how urban policy can can inform the, the spaces we live in. So I think it'll be a really exciting mix. We have a we have a lighting designer from New Zealand. So like I said, just kind of differences in scale. We'll be talking about designing designing cities down to designing objects. Given this pandemic and, you know, the fact that, you know, you're now you're doing this virtually. Talk about the reach because, you know, you've got a, a global community here. We've seen a really interesting aspect with the chapter where we're actually getting more attendance in our events than when they were in person. So I think on one hand, we're missing kind of the the in-person camaraderie that happens as a professional organization when you can get together person, you know, person to person. Um, But the flip side of it has been we're getting more participation from neighbor islands, more participation from people who may practice outside of downtown. So it's a mixed it's a mixed blessing in some respects. We're able to get more attendance. So we had a couple a couple elements of the conference that were going to be in person, and we've decided to postpone those because of the, the new requirements. So we've got an architectural showcase at Cafe Julia that was going to happen in tandem with the with the online um, educational sessions. We're going to be pushing that back to early next year to a time. I mean, time to, yet to be determined when we can safely do that. But we're all looking forward to getting together in person and celebrating some of the, the local work that's been going on in the past year and a half of the pandemic. We've been hearing from Honolulu AIA's Vice President Jim Niccolo talking about an inaugural conference set for September 30th and October 1st. Organizers made the decision to have an all-virtual event and have also put off a planned gathering at the Tenlist Lillistrand House until it is safe to gather again. Look for links on our website later today. This is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. 
Oniho Olehua Onihau Okawa Oahu Omoloka Olana Omau Okaho Olave Ohavai Mahalo Fa'afetai Gracias Sheshe Arigato Salamat Po Grazie. Merci. Duncan Sean. Obrigada. We are thinking of different ways to say thank you on World Gratitude Day. While digging into its history, we discovered the celebration got its start right here in Hawaii. It was during a Thanksgiving gathering at the East-West Center that spiritual leader uh, Sri Chinmoy suggested a globally unifying holiday to formally express gratitude and appreciation for the many wonderful things to be found in the world. Over 90 people were in attendance and each pledged to hold a gratitude gathering the following year when they return home to their own countries. Since that simple beginning, the number of people celebrating World Gratitude Day on September 21st has grown exponentially. For today's quiz, we want to know the year that the idea for a global day of gratitude was first proposed. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. of Hawaii's summer surge of visitors was a strong reminder of the need to better manage tourism in order to reduce the overcrowding at public spaces and to educate tourists about life in our islands. The Hawaii Tourism Authority, the agency tasked with those goals, issued a progress report this week on its Hawaii Island Destination Management Action Plan. The Conversations Russell Sabiano spoke with Carolyn Anderson, HDA's Director of Planning, to get more details. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the Hawaii Island Destination Management Action Plan or any of the plans for for the islands, can you give them a quick summary of the plan and its purpose? Sure. So the Hawaii Island Destination Management Action Plan was created by the Hawaii Tourism Authority in partnership with the County of Hawaii as well as the Island of Hawaii Visitors Bureau. And in development of the plan, there was a steering committee comprised of residents of Hawaii Island who represented not only the communities that they live in, but also different sectors. So from the visitor industry to natural resources, Hawaiian culture, agriculture, and community in general, and general business. And the whole purpose of the Destination Management Action Plan for Hawaii Island as well as for the, you know, the rest of the Hawaiian Islands is to really rebuild, reset tourism for that island because we know that you know, each island, the community's needs are different. We also held community presentations to gather input. And so the Hawaii Island Destination Management Action Plan, it was released in... April of this year. What you'll find in it are overall actions and sub-actions to, to help make the island a better place for not only the residents, you know, to improve quality of life, but also to make sure that our visitors also have a great experience while visiting the island. I know that there's phases within the action plan for Hawaii Island. How many phases does the Hawaii Island plan have? So the Hawaii Island Plan has three phases, and this is actually for all the other DMAPs as well. And this is a three-year plan. So for the first phase, you know, we just issued out a summer progress report to share with the public, you know, how we're moving in the first phase of actions. 
and that so that the public also knows that this isn't a plan that sits on the shelf that we are moving on it and it's you know through the partnership of you know d- different state county agencies federal agencies as well as you know nonprofits and businesses to help move the plan forward and i know that hca is in phase 1 of the hawaii island plan and in that press release that you sent this week detailing progress on the plan, which was which is pretty great, too. I, I think a lot of people have the idea that when these plans are put together, you know, when these ideas are kind of yeah. assembled, that they kind of just kind of sit somewhere mm-hmm. for a little while and maybe something will happen down the road. But it seems like you guys got the ball rolling pretty quickly. According to the press, press release, it says that 73% of sub-actions for phase one are currently in progress. That sounds really good. Yeah. You know, we wanted to make sure that, yeah, we're taking action on these actions. And I think that also the public wants to see action be done. And so, yeah, we are doing our best to make sure that we are implementing the actions in the action plan. And of course, it does take, you know, everyone's support to help move these actions forward. So, you know, we're just grateful for the partnerships that we have. Have there been any major obstacles your agency has had to overcome or still is working on overcoming to get to a place where you can get to 100% of the phase one sub-actions in progress? Nothing yet so far. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing, you know, what we can to move on the action. So, yeah, n- knock on wood, <laughs> no obstacles Yes. Oh, that's good. That's good news. And and so I did want to learn a little bit more about some of the specific things that that HCA is doing to move toward the completion of the plan. Can you talk about restoring the original Hawaiian place names to the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park maps, apps, and signs? You know, for this project, it's actually that was all being done by the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And so they, you know, when we reviewed the actions and then we talked about, okay, what have we been doing to move it? And so Jessica Farrakane, she, you know, is with the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and she sits on the steering committee for the Hawaii Island DMAP. She said that she's helping to move this action through Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, restoring the original place names at this park maps, apps, and signs. So, you know, this is one example of you know, we need partnerships to help move these actions forward. And so we're so grateful, you know, that the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park is working to move the Hawaii Island DMAPS actions forward. One other action I wanted to, to learn a little bit more about is the Pololu Trail Steward Program. I read a little bit about it. It sounds like this is an opportunity for people in the community to help educate visitors coming to Pololu or and, and even promoting that there is this other valley trail. Can you talk a little bit more about that? The Pololu Trail Steward Program is a partnership with DLNR Naalahele Trails Program as well as Kupu. Pololu Valley actually is one of the hot spots identified in the Hawaii Island DMAP and we define a hot spot as a as a place or a site that, you know, is visited by visitors, but also has the potential to become overcrowded or congested, or, you know, there might be some safety hazards because of, you know, a lot of visitation to it. And so what we're trying to do is help mitigate the situation. So again, through the partnership with DLNR and Kupu, we embarked on this Pololu Trail Steward Program. And so what it is, is that HTA is funding four part-time trail stewards to help educate people who are going on the trail. And so this is this could be visitors or residents, you know, just letting them know of, you know, what they can expect, also providing them safety information, as well as cultural and historical information about the area, as well as geography, you know, about the place as well. And so the stewards are all from the surrounding area of Kapa'au, and they are intergenerational and represent a 
a range of ages. And so it's been really good, you know, from the reports I've got back, that it was, it's been really good to have, you know, people from the area, you know, share about the area with visitors as well as residents. It's such a nice hike and a very underrated place to know that more people can experience it in a, in a very coordinated way. Sounds like a good thing for the island. Yeah, definitely. And it just also helps to mitigate the impact by users who go to the area. One of the things mentioned in the press release is the Pono Pledge video. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So are you familiar with the Pono Pledge that's out there? I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. I'm I'm interested to, to hear more about it. Oh, okay. So the Pono Pledge, it's specifically for the island of Hawaii. So what it is, is basically the residents would like people to know that when they're on the island, when they travel throughout the island, that they want them to pledge to be a Pono traveler. So making sure that, you know, they're mindful, respectful when they're visiting the different places throughout. And so... The Pono Pledge video is about 10 things that, you know, they're pledging to do. It's been translated from English to Hawaiian and showcases residents of the island repeating the pledge in English and Olelo Hawaii. And so the creator of the video is Native Hawaiian and, sorry, his name slips my mind right now. Oh, um, Lito Archangel. Yes. So he directed and produced the Pono Pledge video. And again, sorry, I shouldn't mention that the Pono Pledge is a County of Hawaii initiative as well as Island of Hawaii Visitors Bureau's initiative. So Lito created the video, directed and produced the Pono Pledge video, and it was actually shared organically by the community. So I think that's one of the great things about it is that it's all organic, community-based. And so far, as I understand that, because how it was distributed, the Pono Pledge, you know, it's on the website, so people, you know, click on it to agree to the pledge. And so now they have over 10,000 pledges, I guess. So it's been really good to see community come together and then also for visitors to also take the pledge as well. Is there anything else about the plan and its current state of implementation you want to share with our listeners? I guess another thing that we just announced is through the Hawaii Community Foundation request for proposals for the Kukulu Ola and the Aloha Aina program. So what this is, is the Kukulu Ola program helps to perpetuate the Hawaiian culture. So they issued out a request for proposals. This is to fund Hawaiian cultural projects, and this helps move the Hawaii Island DMAP as well as our other DMAPs forward. And the other one is the Aloha Aina program. There's a request for proposals for projects that help to protect, preserve our natural resources. And soon we will be releasing our Community Enrichment Program, RFP, through the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau. Thank you so much for your time, Caroline. Thanks. That was the HTA's Director of Planning, Carolyn Anderson, talking with our Russell Subiono. A link to more information about the plan and the request for proposals will be posted on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. A mother renewing calls for answers and accountability for her two-year-old daughter's death four years ago is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us this morning. Hi, Christina. Morning, Catherine. This is a very troubling story, and it comes at a time when I think people's hearts are just tendered knowing that there is a a missing child uh, and lots of unanswered questions about her disappearance. But tell us about about this two-year-old. Right. So this was a case from four years ago. Uh, Two-year-old Ocean Wright was um, home with her stepmother and her stepsister um, at the Schofield Barracks. And the details of what exactly happened are are not certain, um, but the bottom line is that Ocean suffered 
second-degree degree burns to her face, arms, and legs, um, burns covering almost 30% of her body, and uh, medical professionals would later say that the burns were consistent with pouring hot liquid and that the injuries were consistent with child maltreatment. Um, and sadly, Ocean would uh, succumb to her injuries. She died um, almost exactly four years ago uh, this week in 2017. And what's sort of unusual about this case is that it, it was determined to be homicide, um, meaning that Ocean did not uh, cause the, the fatal injuries herself. But um, there have not been any criminal charges filed in this case. And why is that? You know, I did my best to find out, um, but it's tough because law enforcement won't say. The bottom line is we don't know um, why not. Um, the case is still technically open with the Honolulu Police Department and the Honolulu Prosecuting Attorney's Office. Um, they said, you know, it's open and active, but, um, you know, I spoke to some law enforcement experts that uh, don't work for the government, and they said, you know, it's the, the t length of time, four years that has passed, is not a good sign. A former city prosecutor and retired judge Randall Lee said it's now becoming a cold case. Yeah, and then you also check with uh, uh, Loretta Sheehan. She's a former city prosecutor. Um, That's right. Um, she was concerned about this case as well. You know, the police department would not give me an interview, but they did acknowledge something interesting about how they classified this case at first. Um, they labeled it as a misdemeanor instead of a felony, and that's more than a matter of paperwork. Um, according to an HPD source that I spoke to, um, labeling it a misdemeanor meant that the case did not trigger an immediate response from the HPD Criminal Investigative Division and also didn't trigger um, the securing of the crime scene and the collection of evidence right away. And Loretta Sheehan, the former city prosecutor, said that can really impact a case and make it harder to prosecute. Uh, now, the former prosecutor said it's not impossible. Um, it, you know, it does make it harder in that situation. But, um, you know, they said a case can still proceed despite that, you know, of course, depending on the facts. And you did talk to uh, what the social service uh, agency is involved in this, right? I wasn't able to speak with them directly. They don't talk about um their cases or specific cases. They kind of only provide general information. However, I do have a report written by the multidisciplinary medical panel that reviewed uh, Ocean's case, and they came to some pretty troubling conclusions, um, saying that this appears to be child abuse, that Ocean had come to the hospital a few weeks before she was burned with other unexplained injuries. Um, and in addition to her burns, when she was hospitalized, um, for the burns, they notice other injuries as well, um, hyperpigmented marks on her body um, that, again, are, are unexplained. Um, so really troubling injuries that, um, you know, four years later, Ocean's mother, who lives in Las Vegas, still doesn't have answers or an explanation for. And the only two people that were there at the time uh, were the stepmom and the four-year-old sibling. That's right. And I did try to get in touch with the stepmother in this case um, to no avail. Um, I left messages multiple ways, um, but she did not get back to me. And uh, any response from the father? Uh, no. I reached out to him um, several ways. Also, his mother declined to comment on behalf of the two of them. Um, so we don't know for sure what their perspective is on all of this. Um, yeah, well, very, yeah. very troubling story, and hopefully uh, that mother gets some answers soon. But thank you so much, uh, Christina, for uh, shedding some light on this. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. On view now, honolulumuseum.org.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Michael Mead, author of Awakening the Soul. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a deep response to a troubled world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, offering palliative, hospice, and bereavement care since 1983, now hiring health care and administrative professionals. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That is a phrase uh, urging public service that is often associated with the Peace Corps program. As it turns 60 this year, we turn to an exhibit on the University of Hawaii Manoa campus. It tips its hat to the program's storied history and one Hawaii resident whose life touched so many. Leilani Dawson is a manuscript archivist at Hamilton Library. She shared the story of Phil Olson, a Peace Corps worker who we lost during this pandemic. The theme of the exhibit is the Peace Corps at 60, the volunteer experience. So the impetus for it, or the real spark behind it, came from a group of returned Peace Corps volunteers here in Hawaii, and that and former staff members of the Hilo Peace Corps Training Center that was in existence in the 60s and early 70s. And so they have been really involved with all the, you know, the 50th anniversary and just keeping in touch. They have a great community. And so they got together and decided, they one, they wanted to do something for the 60th anniversary. But then earlier this year, when the announcement of Phil Olson's passing came out, they thought that it would be really nice to memorialize him through an exhibit tied in with the 60th anniversary of the Peace Corps program, especially since he was so involved with the Hawaii Peace Corps training program. He was head of the university's Peace Corps training program overall, which included the Hilo Peace Corps Training Center and then various other programs as well. And then he was really involved with not only the training aspect, but also having been one of the earliest volunteers in the Philippines in the early 60s. And so he just kept through that his entire career in touch with all these people. And so they all knew him. They were all friends with him. They all knew his service to the community, you know, with the Honolulu Marathon and the Quiet Birdman and the Symphony and the Elks Club. And so they just decided, hey, let's do this. And since they knew that the university archives had a collection of material records from the Peace Corps Training Center, that's when they approached the library and decided or um, or asked how they could make the exhibit happen. And so that's where my involvement came in. And then throughout the spring and summer, we just sort of plugged away at choosing materials, doing background research, getting in contact with his estate and his family to see what they had still amongst Phil's own records. And then, they, of course, as former Peace Corps volunteers, they all had sort of the background history and information themselves. And so all of that came together to form the exhibit that is up in the library today. I have to chuckle because I guess he's from Minnesota. (laughs) And (laughs) yet, you know, serving out in the Pacific, I mean, so many Peace Corps workers continue to stay connected in the Pacific just because of their their ties and, and what an amazing experience the Peace Corps was. Yeah, and this is actually touched on slightly in, in passing in the exhibit, but the Hawaii training program from, I'd say, the early 60s, 62, 63, to around 72, 73, um, a good chunk of the people who went on to serve in either Southeast Asia or the Pacific Islands went through the Hawaii Peace Corps training program at some point. And because it was university-based and all on-site with interactions with local people and sort of getting to know the terrain and what you might need to learn, like the skills you would need to know to like build a little hut for yourself in the jungle, that sort of thing. Phil Olson actually mentioned that he thought that it was a much stronger model for training than what 
the Peace Corps transitioned to in the mid-70s, which was in-country training, which had some advantages, but he said that they missed out on some of that community-building aspect where you know, after a couple of decades, it became clear that there were more dropouts in the first year of Peace Corps service from that in-country model than from the University of Hawaii's model that had been in place before that. So I think it was a real testament to the work that he and the staffers did to acclimate people and sort of give them a sense of what they would be were getting themselves into. And you mentioned he was just so active in the community here, you know, with the symphony and and the Church of the Crossroads and, and how deep his roots are in the Pacific. You know, I mean, he was actually also what the associate dean of the right. College of Arts and Science, <laughs> Sciences at UH Manoa. Yeah, yeah. So after he came back from the Philippines is when he started work at the University of Hawaii. And he was with the university for over a decade, working first with the Peace Corps program and then more generally as associate dean, as you mentioned. Um, And in the meantime, he was building up community connections with nonprofits and civic groups and cultural institutions here um, in the state, as you mentioned, everything from pilots group, because he was a pilot, both commercial and private, also like Elks and Press Club, because he was a reporter for a while, and then with his religious ties with the Church of the Crossroads. And he was really involved also in the marathon. He not only completed it several times, but he was, you know, best friends with Jack Scaff, who was one of of the founders of the marathon, as well as another (laughs) Peace Corps person. And so they just were just, you know, all really tight and really sort of built on each other's successes, I think. Well, he certainly is a good symbol of the mark that Peace Corps uh, members make in a community. Right. I think there's really something to be said for those ideals of the Peace Corps of, you know, not only teaching young people how to interact with the world and become multicultural citizens, but then how to bring the sense of community and self-reliance that they learned in country back to their homes. So share with our listeners how we get access to this exhibit, because I know the University of Hawaii has, you know, taken certain precautions and restrictions, you know, due to COVID. So how can we see this show? Sure. It's a bit complicated. As you mentioned, there are lots of restrictions, lots more than we were expecting to have at this time. Uh, But people from the public can come in to see the exhibit. They'll have to go onto the library's website. and, And there's this little green banner on top that says the library is here to help. At the bottom of that green banner on the top of the page is request a research appointment link. And that leads you to a form which tells you or asks various questions and tells you the rules, including, you know, you have to be masked, you have to be vaccinated, you have to bring proof of vaccination and all this other stuff. But the way that people can come and see the exhibit is by filling out that request a research appointment form and saying that they'd like to come in and see the exhibit It's not walk-in basis. You have to actually make the appointment. But someone will email you back and then set up a time for folks to come in. (laughs) Okay, so it's basically by reservation if you're not a student or a faculty member that is using the library. Yeah, and it's not just UH Manoa. The UH, any, from any, if you have any UH ID system-wide, you can come right on in, um, or East-West Center IDs as well. You can come right on in, but anyone without a UH system or East-West Center ID does have to fill out that re- research appointment request. And for, let's say, the returned Peace Corps volunteers who may live on the neighbor islands and can't make it here to uh, Oahu? Sure. I would suggest that they get in contact with the returned Peace Corps volunteers of Hawaii because they have put together an extensive slideshow detailing not only everything that's in the exhibit, but also several items that we couldn't fit into the exhibit. Um, and so that they have this slideshow presentation that they are going to give live, I think, at some point, and then also that they can just email in PowerPoint or PDF form to people. Okay, but there's a bonus, too. If you can't make it in person, yeah, you get yeah, something Yeah, you get to see everything that we wanted to fit in but couldn't. Okay. <laughs> that was Leilani Dawson, manuscript archivist at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, talking about a new exhibit marking the 60th anniversary of the Peace Corps that just opened at Hamilton Library last week. It runs through October 14th.
happens to be World Gratitude Day. Who or what are you grateful for? Celebrated on the equinox of September 21st, this is a day to reflect on your personal blessings and share in the universal message of being thankful. The idea was first proposed in 1965 by Sri Chinmoy when he was director of the United Nations Meditation Group. It was a Thanksgiving dinner at the East-West Center in Honolulu that Chinmoy shared the idea of a universal day of appreciation. He received a pledge from all those in attendance that they would return home and hold a gratitude gathering in their own country the following September 21st. The practice continued each year and grew exponentially. And 12 years later, the United Nations Meditation Group honored Sri Chinmoy for his work and put forth a resolution to formally recognize World Gratitude Day on September 21st, 1977. We had no winners today, but that was today's quiz. And if you have an idea for one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. I think we need to look at public health preparedness through a lens of national security. Former FDA head Scott Gottlieb says we need to rethink our pandemic response. There was a perception that CDC had this, that they'd be able to mount a national scale response to a crisis of this magnitude, but it's not the kind of organization that they are. Lessons from the pandemic. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Lifestyle influencer and author Marty Toto has made gratitude the foundation of her business and her life. Her book, Kids for Gratitude, was written to inspire parents and adults to model for children the daily expression of giving and sharing gratitude. It's a concept that shouldn't be limited to just special occasions. The conversations Lillian Song spoke with Toto, who says her mindset is rooted in having been raised in Hawaii. I look at the aloha spirit as gratitude, and I'm so grateful that my mother moved me to Hawaii at such a young age that I had the opportunity to experience that. When I came to Hawaii, my family was very small, and I saw people around me that they just accepted you for you, and they were kind and welcomed you into their their family. And so I had, of course, a Hanai family, which means for those that might be listening on the mainland, it means extended family that's not your own blood. And what I saw was that when I would go and visit my dad on the mainland, it was like a different culture, a different vibe of how I was treated. It seemed like gratitude was only spoken about at Thanksgiving or on Valentine's Day. And I feel not just have a day of gratitude, but practice it every day in our business life, in our personal life, and in our home life. And especially right now, it's very hard. It's been very difficult for people to look in their life and say what they're grateful for, or it's not just about saying thank you, but to act on gratitude, whether it's on social media, whether it's in your home, taking time to look at what means something to them. I believe gratitude starts in the home. Example, you know, right now I'm appalled at what our children are seeing in the media and on TV because what we show our children is what they become. We're a leading example for our kids. We're a leading example for our youth. And one of the things, like with my book, is implementing gratitude into our children to, instead of complaining, which unfortunately we have become a bunch of complainers right now, and rightfully so, the world has changed. Unfortunately, we can't control what is going on, but we can change things in our home. We can change things on social media. But even in our home, we can stop and tell our children, you know, why don't we go do something for an elderly person? And as far as adults, I had to take a hiatus, honestly, even though I'm known all over the world for branding and social media, I teach businesses how to implement gratitude into their brand or how to implement gratitude on social media 
I had to take a break from social media because it became, I call it culture toxicity, so toxic. And then I teach on how to implement gratitude online as well, how people, rather than getting caught up in the politics or getting caught up in the negativity on social media, when you're online to make comments, you know, to somebody else's post or to send them a video DM or, you know, do something that makes somebody feel good rather than focusing on the negativity that's going on in the world, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yes. So, Vardy, what I'm hearing is that gratitude is not just one day out of the whole year. It is a mindset. And as you share and extend this grace, this act of gratitude with the people around you, it's kind of like paying it forward, planting those seeds. It is. And it's like you start allowing grace, this gratitude, to then infiltrate your community. And as you're saying in Hawaii, you really felt it when you were growing up here that there was that aloha spirit. There was gratitude. And what you are doing now in your career is helping to perpetuate it, pay it forward. Yes. And as far as communicating, um, you know, we have to stop a minute. And even though we have had setbacks in our family, our personal life. I've had eight people close to me pass away of COVID, not just in Hawaii, but throughout the world, mm-hmm. is just take a step back and say, you know what? Some of us, we need to be grateful that we're spending more time with our families. It's taught some of us that we're never around our families to better communicate. I'm not saying myself, but that is the feedback I'm getting from clients is, you know, people have had to step up and, believe it or not, be parents they get home with their kids and instead of, you know, um, not seeing their families. Or there are more jobs now than ever, and people are saying that they can't find a job. There are plenty of jobs remotely. Um, that's the other thing we can be grateful for and just see it in a different perspective is that, hey, now I can work from home. I can, you know, Amazon is hiring on, you know, more calls are coming through Amazon and FedEx and UPS and, you know, there's always DoorDash or, you know, different local ways that we can make money now and spend more time with our families. So we have to also see this, even though it's been negative, we've had opportunities presented to us that we haven't before. I've been working online for 27 years doing consulting and training with branding and social media. I have taught people how to take their skill set and the talents that God has given them and turn it into income. So now all of a sudden, I'm able to teach people how they can, you know, make money from home or how they can give them ideas on how they could possibly get jobs to work from home. Instead of seeing the negative, we need to look at the positive and has it been easy for me? No. And also, sorry, is surround yourself with positive people. Get involved in a positive group, whether it's a church or something positive, because if you're around people that are negative and complaining all the time, that drains you. It's emotionally draining. It's harmful. I've had to delete a lot of people out of my life because I just could not stand the complaining. It just weighs me down. And so... It is a mindset, and I understand that it's hard right now to be grateful. I get that. I've gone through it. I, like I said, being transparent and real, you know, I've had my moments. Is maybe just writing down, and it sounds so silly, like 10 things that you're really grateful for every day for the next 30 days, and maybe just for once, for 24 hours, try not to complain and watch what happens to your life. You'll feel better. You'll be better for your children. You'll be better for other people. And even though someone out there listening might say, well, I don't have anything to be grateful for, you do. You have your health. You have a roof over your head. You have children or someone that cares about you to just not complain for 24 hours and and write down what you are grateful for. It's very important to not be around people that complain because 
if you are, it can really drag you down. And so a healthy mind right now, um, we can't help anyone unless we're healthy in our own mind. That was Barty Toto talking with our Lillian Song about making gratitude a daily lifestyle. We'll have links to her website on hawaiipublicradio.org later today. And now we'd like to share messages from our listeners on this World Gratitude Day. Good day. My name is Bucky Martin, and I live in Tepikeo on the Big Island. And my gratitude is, first of all, to this beautiful Big Island itself, paradise indeed, and also, moreover, for the cultural diversity among us. I am most grateful for that. It is a learning experience and a way to get over any traces of bigotry. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha, this is Diane Peters Wynn. I'm calling from Kailua, Oahu. I'm grateful for the beauty that surrounds us in our island home, for the ocean, the cool trade winds, and the koolaus. Hinani no. That is a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we bring back a familiar voice, a voice from Madagascar, a former Peace Corps volunteer and Hilo's son who now works as a Peace Corps recruiter here in the islands. Got a Peace Corps experience you can share with us or a story about Phil Olson? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 